0: You found the Diggin Oak Island Podcast, a podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you guys so much for downloading and listening. If you have been listening to and enjoying our little podcast, please consider helping us out by becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash oak island to learn more. All right, welcome. Before we get started, let me uh, just get in another plug here right off the top for our Patreon page. If you think this podcast is worth five bucks a month for you and you would like to see the podcast keep on going, then please think about becoming a patron of our show. You can go to patreon.com slash digginoakisland and sign up. It's five bucks a month. Patrons get exclusive access to a live chat during the U.S. broadcast of each new episode of The Curse of Oak Island. We're also going to be planning some uh, giveaways and some things like that. Uh, The chat is the best part of it for sure. Uh, It's just so much fun. So come on over. Join us. Go to patreon.com slash digging Island, sign up, support the podcast. It's only five bucks a month and you can cancel any time. And if you prefer to not to do the monthly thing, makes perfect sense to me. You can also make a one-time donation to the podcast via Venmo. Just use the username at Dave McBride music. I am a musician by trade. That's my virtual tip jar, so to speak. And that's really the only place I have that you can do that. All right, let's start the podcast off with emails and messages from you guys. Let's begin with an email from our friend Mara, who uh, sent a hilarious image of Templar clues found on Oreo cookies that she found online. It really is awesome. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll try to put it on the Facebook page for us. But she also writes with us, saw it on some random Facebook image, and it's funny, right? Because on one hand, it's just silly. They're sandwich cookies. But also... There's the part of us that can see the Da Vinci code of all of it, conspiracy hiding in plain sight. It's like a delicious physical representation of Oak Island reality. Sometimes ox shoes are abandoned while hiding the Ark of the Covenant, and sometimes they're left by a farmer on a munchie run. (laughs) Yes, it is silly, but inside all of us laughing here and uh, how great this image is, um, you make a really unbelievably good point about all this, right? And especially when it comes to the curse of Oak Island. This is what aggravates people the most about the show, right? Uh, Sure, a plank of wood washed up on the beach could be from the secret Templar voyage to hide the Holy Grail, but it also could just be a plank of wood that blew off the side of a badly maintained barn somewhere in Mahome Bay, all right? But having said all of that, I think, Mara, that you're going to need to look into this Oreo-Templar connection a bit more closely, (laughs) Just saying. Great stuff as always. Great to hear from you more. Okay, let's go now to Joe who writes, Hi Dave. So although it seems the show hit the mid-season doldrums a bit early this year, things are already picking up. It's nice to see the science and history getting more attention, especially with the team maybe zeroing in on the chapel vault and finding older artifacts on Lot 5. I'm curious to find out more about those big chunks of pottery they found in the swamp too. Laird usually seems to be able to put a pretty small bullseye on those as far as date and place of origin, but I'm most eager to see what happens if they drop a big can where they think they found the Trapel Vault. It seems like they've been chasing that thing around since the Obama administration. Do you think it will be just a hammer grab operation or might they consider sending Tony Tony Sampson down there on a hoist? I'm looking forward to the next few months. Whatever happens or doesn't happen, thanks, Joe. Joe, just a couple of real quick things here. Uh, Number one, uh, I am a little bit disappointed we didn't hear more from those big chunks of pottery this week. Maybe we will. Sometimes they come back to that a couple of weeks later. Uh, don't see why they couldn't do it now. They have a whole team of archaeologists just waiting to look at them. For some reason, they didn't. That kind of disappoints me a little bit. It makes me, uh, makes me a little uh, worried that they really were nothing. Um, I also remain a skeptic with regards to the chapel vault, like I do with most everything else, honestly, that searchers in the past claim to have found. And that goes from the 90-foot stone to the gold chain. These are all things that have been lost through time, and they're only just, at this point, stories, legends, Chapel Vault being one of them. This week's episode certainly didn't help turn that skepticism around at all for me, Uh, more on that in a bit. The thing is, evidence for an actual vault, right, is thin at best, and it's been thin for a long, long time, centuries. We are working with only a tiny, tiny slice of paper and the assumptions of a drill operator as evidence. Will they be able to finally prove such a vault exists? Who knows? But I agree, though, the fact that they are chasing something of what I consider real historical significance here, at least historical significance in regards to the history of the Oak Island treasure hunt. Um, This is very, very exciting for us Oak Island nerds. No doubt about that. All right. Let's hear from the wonderfully named David, who writes, Hi, David here from British Columbia in Canada. We get the broadcast Sunday evenings a few days later than our American friends. I have to resist peeking in advance on YouTube. I'm happy to support your podcast by becoming a Patreon member. Thank you, sir. I appreciate your positive approach to the Oak Island mystery. Your interview with Chris Morford and Corey Mall was great. I was impressed by their genuine excitement about discoveries they are privy to but that have not yet been broadcast. I've been fascinated with Oak Island since reading the now famous Reader's Digest article in the early 1960s. I have deep family roots roots in Nova Scotia. My grandfather was born and raised in Lunenburg in in 1890, which for those of you who don't know, is right by Oak Island. I imagine him as a young man rowing around Mahone Bay, likely with friends and exploring Oak Island just like Daniel McGinnis did a century earlier. I've done a lot of research on my own, and I look forward to contributing when I think it's helpful. I'm interested in being part of a group that doesn't waste its energy complaining about the show itself. There's so much more to talk about. Here's an example. Ox shoes. They found a bunch of them along the stone road and pathways. The month, uh, the month boat ride, uh, the logistics behind the discovery are to me, mind boggling. Oxen had to be brought over on a three month boat ride from Europe with feed and carts and yes, shoes. Once on Oak Island, they had to be fed and overwintered. The ox shoes they found were lost accidentally, as many oxen and ox carts were transporting materials on a network of stone paths built on Oak Island. That speaks to the scope of the effort and the amount of resources and planning required to sustain this multi-year project. When they were done, they buried the roads and structures and left few traces of of ever having been there. Who did that and why? Why? This is the mystery that I'm excited to talk about. Thank you for all your good work at Digging Oak Island. Dave, thank you very much. I couldn't have said it better myself there, right? This is exactly why I'm doing this podcast. To me, it's not about the Knights Templar or um, Pirate Treasure. It's not about Bobby Dazzlers or whatever Jack Begley thinks of a chunk of muddy wood. It's about lost history. And as I see it, um, you know, finding the truth... Uh, of what I am convinced is indeed a mystery you know uh, it is it's it's a terrific subject and it just seems to get better and better. Welcome to the family David. Can't wait to hear more from you. And finally, here is our last email from William who writes, I will admit I was in the shower and I heard you mention Cornwallis. That's the OMG moment. I'm currently living in a small village in Kent, which is in England. I am at my parents and they live in one of the late uh, the last of the late Lord, Finnis cornwallis's properties this is a gifted property for the service my mother gave to him and his second wife i spent a lot of time with him and i'm friends to this day with some of his children he was a truly interesting man incredibly knowledgeable i'm very close with his youngest daughter rosie the late lord cornwallis was very senior in the freemasons i know he was a friend of the late duke of edinburgh they were in india too a very important family in its day I was already hooked on the Oak Island mystery from the day I read the same article as the Laginas in readers digest at my uh, late grandmothers. When I was about nine, I'm 55 now and now my family friends have been mentioned. I want to find out more. Great show, Dave, keep it going. William, William is referring, of course, thank you, sir. uh, Referring to the emails sent by our new investigator, Corey, who is doing some brilliant research. Just send me some, some stuff today uh, that I'm going to get to this weekend. Maybe I'll have more on this next week. Um, on the history of Oak Island, how it relates to the Duke Donville expedition, and particular that time period in Nova Scotia where the Cornwallis family plays a big part. William, I got to tell you, uh, Corey's stuff is off the hook, and I'm starting to get my Cornwallises a little bit confused. So we're not going (laughs) to talk too much until I get it all straightened out because Corey and I are working on getting a lot more to you uh, and you guys on the subject in the near future. So stay tuned. Thank you, William. Okay, folks, that's all for the emails today. Don't forget, if you have any questions or comments, send them along to island at gmail.com. All right, folks, it's time now to discuss Season 11, Episode 12 of The Curse of Oak Island called Plugged Up. Let's start over at the Money Pit, where the episode opens with Alex Lagina getting an update from the Dumas foreman it appears that geofoam stuff that they were using to seal the water off from entering the garden shaft has worked, and they can finally begin digging down their target depth of 95 feet. I will, however, mention that in the few shots we see of the Dumas guys working on the the garden shaft, we are still seeing water coming in, maybe not as much, but there is definitely uh, (laughs) some sort of moisture there. Uh, Now, in this first scene here, we get a really fascinating little nugget from the narrator who tells us the water they've been fighting against is indeed salt water. This is a big deal, folks. For weeks, they've been saying that this flooding is part could be part of the booby trap system, yet at the same time, never bothering to mention whether this was indeed fresh water or salt water, which, which makes all the difference in the world. If it were fresh, then it doesn't match the descriptions of the flooding in the original money pit. Uh, so it wouldn't be that. But since it's salt water, well, that's something worth getting interested in and looking into. The thing that puzzles me the most here in all this is why they waited so long to tell us this. It's an incredibly important detail and only further feeds into the narrative of the booby trap and all that kind of stuff. Yet it hardly gets a mention on the show. Just a passing sort of nod to it from the narration. Strange decision, if you ask me. Anyway. Next, we see the new exploratory borehole being dug at the money pit. This one called, I should get this right, (laughs) I.25-6.25. And it is five feet to the southwest of where they put down the H8 can that they theorize might have been the one that hit the chapel vault and moved it a little bit. They're looking for remnants of the H8 work, and they're also a void down at 180 feet, 83 feet. They find neither of those things. So when they hit the bedrock uh, after this distance, the hole is then abandoned. However, in the process, they pull up this mangled piece of metal inside these drill samples, um, which the team thinks could be part of the original drill used by Chapel. Maybe even the one that found the parchment itself, right? Now it's here where one of our patrons, Claude, again, I lean on you guys so much, but Claude came up with a great one here as he wrote, um, hollow pipe drill, the small, that small in diameter to penetrate a vault, not in my 30 years as a machinist. That ain't no part of no damn drill, but I do have to wonder why it's there. Claude, I'm going to side with your experience here, man. I have none in this, I, and you apparently do. Uh, but all, but like you also said there, what is it doing down there, right? I mean, to be honest, uh, you know, I, I guess the skeptic in me would say, with all the searcher work done, the Dunfield crater, all that kind of stuff, on and on and on, there just must be a ton of junk down there. But to find it in a drill like that, standing straight upright, that's pretty strange for sure. <clears throat> Let's head over now to lot five where work on the circular foundation continues, this kind of foundation thing. Jamie Kubis says they're finding lots of artifacts during their process, which unfortunately we don't get to see. And she also remarks how as they continue digging and excavating, this feature appears to be getting bigger and bigger, as she says, too big for a single family. They also pull out a piece of iron that is pretty difficult to distinguish what it is from these images that we get here. But anyway, have no fear. Carmen Leg is here. The blacksmithing expert comes back to the island in his wonderful Indiana Jones hat to have a look at this piece of iron and also the little pieces of copper found last week, if you remember that. He looks at the copper first, and all he really says about it is that it looks kind of decorative, not much to go on here, honestly, from him. He then looks at this piece of iron from earlier in the episode, and if I'm understanding him here, he says that it is a metal strap on like a strong box or a cash box. Not at all sure how he can gleam all that from this little piece of pretty corroded and dirt-encrusted scrap, but hey, he's the expert here, not me. I will say this, however. Yes, folks, people had safe places like lockboxes to store their valuables. In the 1700s, in a sparsely inhabited wilderness, people didn't take their cash down to deposit it in the corner bank. So honestly, just about everyone probably had something like one of these things not just people burying a secret treasure. Not trying to burst your bubble, just trying to put it into context. Emma Culligan does some scanning on the piece of iron to confirm that it is indeed from the 1600s to the 1700s. And Alex Lagina, who is there in this meeting with Carmen, uh, then relates this somehow to the William Phipps theory, but it's important to note that Emma does not, right? So we can assume then at least that the metallurgy of this item does not match those from the Phipps homestead or you can bet your bottom dollar she would have mentioned it. Um, later on in the episode, the archaeologists find another glass bead, really cool glass bead, and in great shape, exactly the same as the one from last week. Uh, and they find also later in a little bit what appears to be a copper coin. Now, we don't get to see any more in either of those items, but I would imagine we will next week for sure. Uh, so let's stay tuned for that. All right. Let's take a quick break, and we'll come back and talk about this swamp. Now, I've said this the last couple of weeks, it really hasn't been that true, but it will be this week. This is going to be a very short podcast, comparatively. There was just not that much here in this episode to expand for you guys. Anyway, let's just head over the swamp and get to it. The guys are still digging up the road between the swamp and the beach, looking for the end of the stone path. Now, if you recall last week, they found some wood here that they uh, opined might have been from a wall Fred Nolan claimed to have found decades ago. They pull out a fairly big chunk of notched wood, kind of big, size of a football or so, and Jack starts carrying carrying on about how this must mean the swamp was man-made and yada, yada, yada. Listen, if these guys really thought that the swamp was man-made and there was a wooden wall here that was used centuries ago to create this swamp, and that's what they were looking at, do you really think they'd be tearing at it with an excavator? Boy, I hope not, man. And I don't think so. Rick Lagini comes down, he takes a look at it, and he compares the wood to the U-shaped structure. Although I have to say I don't really know why, but again, he's holding the piece of wood in his hand. And he's getting much a much better look at it than we are awarded here on the show. Now, six, since Rick mentioned the U-shaped structure, let's just pause here for a second and answer a question from the live chat by our good friend Claude, who the aforementioned Claude, who asked, anybody else see Gordon Fader's theory on the U-shaped structure? as a roof to a barn. It's a very plausible theory that gives a reason for the U-shaped structure. Claude, as I mentioned to you, I did not recall the theory when we were in the chat. So I went to the source and asked Gordon himself, and here's his response. He writes, Hi Dave, yes, I know about the U-shaped structure and various theories. We determined and published in our book that it was built by the British in 1720 as a storage shed for tar barrels. The plans were from the English military, and they were specifically dictated to build it as the tar was getting too hot in the summer and barrels were leaking when the sun when left in the sun. One group said it was just the top of a barn that came off in a storm and floated to Smith's Cove. That is incorrect for several reasons. It would never have remained intact in its ocean travel, and the other factor is that it was built on till and very flat. If it had floated, it should have landed on beach sand and rounded gravel, which it did not do. It dates from the McPhee and Harris, uh, dates, dates of it from Les McPhee and Harris, these are authors, said 1720. We call it the cool shed, in quotes, as that was the original purpose and its location near an old dock face and others other features also confirm that it was and where it is located. It's a strong piece of evidence for British military industrial activity on Oak Island. So there you go, Claude, straight from the source. It's all in his book, Oak Island, Mystery Solved, The Final Chapter. It was written by Gordon Fader himself and the late, great Oak Island researcher, Joy Steele, who uh, really did contribute much to uh, the Oak Island research recently and uh, was never... It's a fantastic book. It should be getting more attention on the television show, and Joy Steele should have gotten some attention too, but alas, I guess it doesn't talk about the Templars or the Ark of the Covenant, so there you go. Anyway also doesn't talk about treasure, so I guess Prometheus isn't that interested. Uh, Later on, they find more hunks of wood, uh, prompting Elizabeth on the live chat to say, finding a fair amount of wood, so it seems it'd be nice to get the wood dated. Absolutely, Elizabeth. But that won't stop the team from using their imagination to come up with some wild theories about what this all means anyway. So the team calls down Marty and Craig to do exactly that. They start describing all this uh, as the end of the stone path leading to the beach where they carried heavy things and so on and so forth from these little chunks of wood in the mud. I really don't know how they could be concluding all this, but I got to step back a little bit and be fair to the guys. This is parents speculating on their part isn't always wrong. Listen, when when this gets fully excavated, if it does, then maybe we can get a good look at it and make a proper determination and see if the guys are indeed correct. But do you remember the stone path? The guys would make all these determinations when all we could see was some rocks in the muck. But after some time, we got to see the stone path for what it truly is, and they turned out to be correct pretty much. So let's be patient with this here. It will be fascinating to get a look at this spot where the path meets the sea. I'm surprised they haven't found uh, much in the way of artifacts to this point right here when you consider it's like the beginning of a wharf and things coming on and off a ship, if that's what the theory is. But again, remember Smith's Cove. Uh, The same thing happened there. Lots of wood, precious little left behind by those who put that wood there and used it for whatever it was used for. Later on, they find another piece of wood, which Gary says could be from a barrel, and then another piece that looked to me like the part of an axe handle. Billy's bucket then hits a boulder, and they start to talk about how this could be more of the stone road they're seeing, or something like that. Again, it's impossible to see what they're talking about from these images. We're just going to have to wait and see on all this. Now, before we go, though, I just want to mention one more thing here. There is some talk during these scenes about how these features might have been deliberately buried or hidden. And and I think the implication that some people have can draw from it is that the road that you see there was somehow part of this hiding process. I just want to remind you, um, that road has nothing to do uh, with what they're digging up here, right? Uh, the road was built in the 20th century, and we have no records of anything from before the road's construction being there. Uh, no searcher ever saw anything over there. Uh, during the construction of the, the road, there's no reports of coming across ancient uh, uh, or you know, very old wood or anything like that. It's, it's, there's just not much to it. So the road, if nothing else, the road has nothing to do with what we're seeing here. Just keep that in mind. Told you it's going to be short. That's going to do it for this episode of the Diggin' Oak Island podcast. Don't forget, you can really help out the show by becoming a patron. If you think the show is worth five bucks a month to you, head over to patreon.com slash Oak Island to learn more. And if you prefer, you can make a one-time donation to the podcast via Venmo. Just use the username at Dave McBride Music. Also, if you'd like to help out the podcast in another way, a great way to do that is by leaving a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your shows. Thanks to everybody who's done that. It does really help get the word out on the show. So uh, please, if you have time to do that, uh, thank you in advance. You can also follow the show on Facebook. Just put at Diggin' Oak Island into your search bar. And if you have any questions or comments that you want to send directly to me, you can do so via email, Oak island at gmail.com. Just remember, if you do send me an email, I'm going to answer it here on the podcast. So if that's something you don't want, let me know. And I'll do my best to answer you just via email. Well, folks, it's crown time. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Diggin' Oak Island.